0: And we are going to start um, in 1 Peter chapter 5, and we're going to end 1 Peter today, so it's going to be the last sermon uh, for 1 Peter, and so we're at 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 11, and we're going to end it today. So 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 11, we'll read it and we'll pray, and then we'll start, so here's what uh, God's Word says. firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray, and then uh, we'll start. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. God, help us to be open to it, Today, I open our hearts to uh, receive uh, your word and that it be implanted in us. Um, God, I pray that you grant us humility. Um, help us to be humble. Um, help us to heed these warnings, these commands as good, as fruit to our soul, and as goodness in life. Help us not to wander from them, but to trust your word and to love what you say. In your sons, let me pray. Amen. All right, so the uh, sermon title is called Grace to the Humble. Uh, so from Verse five. Uh, Benjamin Franklin uh, made the comedic, the comedic and true statement found in his autobiography. Uh, he said this about pride: "There is perhaps no one of our natural passions so hard to subdue as pride. Beat it down, stifle it, mortify it as much as one pleases; it is still alive. Even if I could, if even if I could conceive that had completely overcome it, I should probably be proud of my humility. So pride's the idea when you think you got to beat." bragging about beating it is prideful. So it's a, it's a terrible thing, pride is this ugly monster. Um, everyone worldwide has it, it's a worldwide problem. It's not just a few people or a certain area, it's a, it's a nationwide problem, a worldwide problem. And in the Bible, there's lots of examples of pride that some of us know well. Maybe you, you know the pride of Satan, uh, which caused God to fall upon him. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar in Dion chapter four, Maybe the pride of Pharaoh and Exodus, we know of these stories of prideful men and we see God's judgment upon them. But I want us to go to one that's more uh, particular um, that is in the New Testament that Peter actually probably either saw or at least he was very well known of and was in the area for. Uh, so you go to Acts chapter 12, real quick, I wanna show you this example of pride that Peter, that was no doubt, at least in the vicinity, if not saw. So Acts chapter 12, um, Herod the king captures James. Brother John kills him. Shortly after, Peter's thrown in prison. Peter's released. Uh, God sends an angel to Peter, frees him, leads him out. Herod looks for Peter. He can't find him. Um, he asks for his guards who guard Peter to be summoned, and it says that he kills them as well. So so far, Herod is a man who he's the big shot. He's the king. You don't mess with Herod. You cross him, you'll die. Then after, if you look in Acts chapter 12 verse 20. Herod is over the people of Tyre and Sidon. So here's what it says, uh, Acts 12, 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, I think is how you say it. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberman, so his right-hand man, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. So these people who are hungry, they're having a famine, they need food. Herod's their main man, so they go to him, hey, can you get us some food? They ask his right-hand man. He gives them food, here's what it says. Verse 21, On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. So clear to see that God opposes the proud. So Herod said, yep, that's right. I provide for you. I'm your main man. I'm the king. And God strikes him down. It says he's eaten by worms. So you probably read that just thing, ew, what does they even mean? Uh, in his text, uh, Josephus says that uh, when he would stand up for the people, he put on a coat, which is bright and shimmering. So it was really bright and pretty and He's up high on his bench, and he looks out, and God strikes him down. So pride looks good. We think, man, that guy's cool. He should be praised. He's worthy of praise. The Bible says that God actually hates pride. He opposes it. It is hostile to pride. Um, But he loves humility. Humility is dependence upon God or trust in God. I think a lot of us think, well, I may be prideful, but I don't say that I'm God. I don't think people shout at me and say I'm God. I don't think I'm this superior being to the Lord. I don't think we necessarily say that. Or even think that in, in ways. But here's ways that we express those, those intentions uh, in our hearts. So here's a couple ways. Um, superiority towards others. So we look down to people. Well, if you had this, you'd be as cool as I was. Or I know more than you, so therefore I'm better. Or look at my position. Look at my money. Or look at whatever. Independence. So saying you don't need help, so I can do this on my own. I need no one's help. You don't got to teach me anything. I just know, I know, I know. I can handle this. Worry is a way of pride or doubting God. God, I can. If you just let me control this, I could handle it. If you give me the reins, this would be a problem. I'm worried because you're not providing. Let me handle it. And then again, control is kind of the same idea that you believe you can run the show best. If God gave you the reins, life would be chaotic. So in this text, in the closing of this text, Peter is going to talk about pride. He's going to tell us why God or what it is that God hates it he's going to show us some practical application how to respond to this so i want us to see five things in this text the warning which is god's opposition two commands so god is mighty and god cares for us our confidence which is the therefore because of those things therefore we have confidence and the last thing is worship so we're going to end in doxology so it's going to be a good text so there's a warning a couple commands a therefore and worship so first I want to see why we should be humble. What's the main reason? Paul, Peter gives the warning, and it's God's opposition. So verses 1 through 4 talks about elders shepherding the flock of God um, over God's people, and Christ is their shepherd. So pastors, they they don't run the church by themselves. They submit to Jesus, who's the, the head honcho. He's, he's the pastor of them. He's, he's their, their shepherd, their the under-shepherds. They submit to him. We submit to his word, we teach his word, we do what Christ would have us do as he told us to do it. Uh, James 3.1 says the teachers of the word have a more strict judgment. So we are responsible under Christ to do what he says, to submit to his word, to know that he is our shepherd. And Then Peter says this, you who are younger, so why would the Bible go from elders to say, but young people, you should submit. So here's, here's the catch. This is common early church language. Uh, let me explain. In 1 John, I'm sorry, in 5.13, if you look in the same chapter of Peter, look at verse 13. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. So who's the she? Well, the biblical language means this is the church. So the bride of Christ, so this is she. So she is the church. It's not a woman, it's the church. And also in 1 John 5, we see reference to the elect lady. Uh, we see G- or john saying little children keep yourself from idols so the same idea the children are the people of the church the lady is the church right same language so when peter says you who are younger the main idea is people who are not elders so you guys who are not the elders it's charged for you so we elders submit to christ and verse 5 says here the people at large submit to your elders so trust your elders trust their ruling trust their guidance that God's to point them over you Wherever you are, submit yourself to the leading of the elders in your church. They are God's instruments for your good, to shape you, to mold you, to lead you to the word, to feed you the word. Submit to them, obey them, trust them as they teach the word to you. Just as the elders submit to Christ. So you follow them as they follow Christ, and you follow Christ too. But you submit physically to the people you can see who are elders. This is an act of humility. So this is the point. Look at verse 5 again. Likewise, you who are younger, the church, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. So this is a command of humility. Submission is humility. It's saying, you're not better than me. You're not richer or smarter, but I'm going to trust your guidance. I'm going to depend upon you to teach me what's right. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to let you discern what's true. You're going to lead. We're going to follow, and we're going to submit. So it's an act of humility. And now, like Peter says here too, he says all of you. So again, in case you're thinking just young people, now it's everyone. So elders, lay people, children's ministry, you name it. All of you, be humble towards one another. Uh, humility is a good way to, to define it, as C.S. Lewis said. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. So it's not woe is me, but it's that person should be served, and I'll, and I'll do it. It's not I'm terrible, it's I want to make myself... Servant to that person, so it's not thinking I'm the worst, but oh, I'll make people look better. It's being other minded, as Philippians 2 says, counting people more significant than yourself. We must clothe ourselves in it, we must wear it like a jacket, be Christ minded. Uh, wear, operate under it. If you're wearing a jacket, everything you do is on your jacket, do everything under humility. Same idea, so operate under it, do things in humility. And here's the reading. So here's Peter's warning. So this is all about humility. Here's Peter's reason. This is a huge reason. The word for means because. Because, for, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So if there's ever a bigger reason to be humble, it's because God is opposed to you. If you're prideful, you're not his friend, he's against you. He does not like pride, he hates it. We must we put pride to death. To put it bluntly, God is hostile towards it. He opposes pride. We've already seen in First Peter chapter 1 that we're called to be holy as God is holy. We're called to be imitators of God as Ephesians 5, one says. So therefore we must humble ourselves and be other-minded as Christ was. We submit our reverence for God to others, to Christ. But God gives grace to the humble. So God gives grace to people who are humble. He attends to them. He cares for them. He provides for them. So the question is, are we clothed in humility? This is, this is the question. This is the warning. Are you humble? Do you seek to be humble? Do you think much of yourself? Do you think less of others? This is what Peter's trying to call us to do. And the warning is to put pride to death. Because if not, God will do it for you. He will oppose you. Now, from being saved, we have to humble ourselves to be saved. But humility, again, it's not just a one-time thing. It's a Christian life. You're supposed to live in humility, close yourself with it. So, that's the warning. Humble yourself, let you find God opposing you. So, that's the warning. So, the reason why you do that is because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So, how can you pursue humility? How do you demonstrate? How do you become more humble? How do you actively do it? What do you have to do to be dependent upon God, not yourself? This is what Peter's going to tell us. Verse 6, here's the command. Humble yourselves, therefore. So again, God wants you to be humble. And here's what he says. Under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. In the text it says the mighty hand of God. Um, in Exodus chapter 3, it says God has a strong hand. In Deuteronomy 3, we read the mighty hand. In Matthew 26, we read Jesus saying the right hand of power. In 1 Peter 3, we see the right hand of God. It's all the same language for God's power, God's hand. God's hand is mighty. I think we think of a hand we think of like precision. So an arm is just strong. A hand is you can actively do things precisely. And you have grip and power and personal dealing. So it's, it can be intimate. You can hold someone's hand. Or you can grab them in your hand forcefully. So it's an act of power and intimacy. So God's mighty hand is precise. It's fierce. It's powerful. And he's personal and kind to his elect. He's good to Him. Bible says that God's hand stretched out the world in Isaiah 48. It says his hand shattered the Egyptians in Exodus chapter 15. And Christ is seated at the right hand to judge the world. But at the same time, that mighty hand, the psalmist says that God upholds him by his hand. Jesus says that no one is able to snatch you out of the Father's hands. So Their security. And if you look at the New Testament, Jesus would heal people. Oftentimes he would touch them with his hand. So it's a hand of healing and touch and personal affection. So, God's hand is mightily against the proud, against His enemies, He destroys, He ruins them, and it's comforting and kind to those who are humble and lowly. So, in our pride, we feel that we are mighty and able to do things. So, in our pride, we think, hey, I can do this, I can handle this. We don't necessarily say that, but I think without uttering a word, we do it by thinking things like this. I can conquer temptation by myself. I can do it. I'm powerful. I'm strong, I know my word, I can do it confidently. Maybe we think our wording with a lost person could save someone's heart. Man, if I could just say a certain phrase, the heart would be changed, they would know it. I can handle that. Or because of my driving skills, my planning, I can make it from point A to point B. I can do that. I'm confident in my ability. To so pride is expressed in just really subtle ways. Very small, it's a very slow progression. Uh, Casting Crown says it's a slow fade. The black and white is turned to gray, as thoughts invade, choices are made, a price will be paid. When you give yourself away, it's a slow, fate. so pride starts small, it starts insignificant it seems, and it grows in you. So we need God's mighty hand against temptation to do what Psalm 119 says, which is to turn our eyes away from worthless things. So God is the reason why we don't, we don't fall into temptation, we need to trust Him and ask Him to help us in temptation. We need God's mighty hand to change someone's heart by the gospel, not by our word, but by His eternal word. So our wording is great, but God's word to His heart is not my vocabulary. We need to rely on God's sovereign will as James forces when we travel. I will go here if the Lord wills. Maybe you don't say it out loud, but you think it. You say, I'll get there. If God allows me to get there, I'll, I'll make it. So we rely on God's power, God's mighty hand to keep us from temptation. To help us in temptation, to change our heart, to give us where we need to go. God is mighty, we are not. That's the point of this text. We are weak. God is huge, we are small. God is able, we are unable. So we're called to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And the text says this, So that at the proper time, He may Exalt me now, pride is one of these really strange sins. So when you sin, what you want to do is you do it because you want to run from God. So you want to hide from God in, in your corner and do what you want so he can't see you, and then you come back. Pride's weird. Pride says, I'm actually going to go above God. I'm better. I call the shots. I direct. It's a very weird sin. It's, it's, it's peculiar when it does. So this text says, humble yourself under God's hand. So the, the, the humble part is saying, God, I need your hand to guide me. I'm not above you. I need you. and God will exalt you at the proper time so as we look you can fight temptation but only by the power of God you can humble yourself only by God's mighty hand even to be humble we need God's hand we can't do by ourselves so even the command requires God's power in the first place so God casts down the wicked the prideful and lifts up the humble in due time Uh, people call it the exchange of eternity those who are lofty and high now who rebel against God eternity God will cast them down he will deal with them no one will be exalted in that day but the Lord alone those who are meek and lowly who seek his hand now and seek his son who are humble in the end God will lift up and will be praised for our obedience to him so it's otherworldly it's other thing that we need to understand this is good we can either fall by God's mighty hand under destruction or fall under his hand for exaltation in eternity but we, we need to choose God will exalt those under his hand so Christian, we must live under his caring, sovereign hand. He will exalt you in due time, but just not now. Just wait. He's good. He's patient with you. So know that God is powerful, and you are not. God's mighty, we are weak. The next way is more is practical as well. So how can we practice this even just in, in an even simpler sense? So knowing that God is able I'm not knowing, I need God to give me from point A to point B is helpful. How it's daily, even, even just small things? I think Peter does this next very well. Verse 7 says this, Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Uh, there's a popular saying in the world, people, people think it's biblical, it's actually not. It says this, God helps those who help themselves. Uh, you have a problem, you need some help, work your hardest, God will chip in and say, hey, I'll throw you some assistance, I'll help you out, I'll, I'll, I'll do the hard stuff for you, you just try your best and I'll help. Clear yourself up, I'll, I'll do the rest, whatever. But rather, the verse should be, as Charles Spurgeon said, God helps those who cannot help themselves. So humility depends upon God. One of the mysteries of that pride exposes is independence from God and depends upon self. We think we can do our own thing, and God can help when I need Him. We'll call Him when I need Him. But what's funny is when bad things happen and we call upon God, it's kind of God's way of exposing your heart, saying, this is how you really are. You need me all the time. Not just in bad things. You need me all the time. So in God's kindness, he providentially allows suffering. So we'll say, God, I need you to expose our heart is this way all the time. We just don't think about it that way. But we think, put yourself up by your bootstraps. Bootstraps alone, I can do this. Uh, the American way is you can do it. Just get more money, get a better job, get more insurance. Drive safer, get a nice car, better house, you'll be fine. And don't get me wrong, those, those things can be helpful. And is great. You should have it. You should have a house to the root. Not, those things are great. But overall, the point is you need God for everything. Acts 17, Paul's preaching. He says this, God is not served by human hands as though he, he needed anything. So God is all sufficient in himself. And then that's good news just right off the bat. God does not need me to make his day. He does not need my help or me to take care of something. God can handle it. What does that mean? What it means is God is independent. We are dependent. We need him for every step, every breath, every waking thing. Jesus said in Mark 10.45, For the Son of Man came not to be served. He doesn't need us, but he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. God, Jesus is not served by us. He came to serve us. Uh, John Piper once said, God is not having a help-wanted sign. He has a help-given sign. If we need help, we go. He gives help. Acts 17, that same text says this, He's not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So God is giving of himself and all that we are. So the call of humility here is to confess your need and say, God, I need you in the small things, in the big things, and walking home and turning my washer, I need you everywhere for everything. The text specifically says, too, I love that Peter does this cast all your anxieties, not just the big worries, not just your big hospital bills, or just your big scary fights, They're small things. God cares about the insignificant things that we think are stupid and small. God cares about them. And what's, what's interesting is the more you grow in, in the Christian life, the more dependent upon God you come. I think the typical thing is, well, if I knew my Bible more, I wouldn't need God. Actually, the opposite is true. The more you know God, the more you know, wow, I need him all the time. I'm kind of weakly. So, Christian maturity is not found in independence, but more depends upon Christ and his word. So, believer the Bible calls you, cast all your anxieties on him. The command almost seems insulting. Don't worry about a thing. You can't handle it anyway. Don't even do it. Humility is hard weird we don't want to say i need help we like the american way i don't like instruction manuals i think they're stupid i want to hammer my own nail, do my own way i think they're insulting but what god says to do is you go to me you need me and we say I, god i can handle this there's, there's a text in the bible that shows us very well it shows that this isn't just the american way this is, this is human nature in second kings chapter five there's a man named naaman He's the commander of the Syrian army. So he's an enemy of the Israelites. He's strong. Uh, The Bible says that he's a mighty man of valor. And it says that he has high favor with the king because he just kicks butt. The king likes him, he he wins victories, he's powerful, he has servants, He has you name it, he has it. But the same text says this, but he was a leper. So as mighty as he was, he had a disease. He was gonna die. It was sickening him, he was gonna kill him. Here's what happens. Elisha is the prophet. He hears of his leprosy and says, Oh, I'll take care of that so they will know that I'm the prophet of God and God is God. So Elisha asks for Naaman. Naaman comes. And this is, this is the part of the text that Naaman gets angry. Naaman comes to Elisha's house with his chariot. Elisha doesn't even come outside. He sends his messenger and he says, Hey, tell him to go in the Jordan River, dip in it seven times, you'll be healed. The text says Naaman gets mad. He says, He didn't even send me himself. He sent a messenger. And I have to go in that Jordan River. He should have sent me to the other one. That one's nicer. So Naaman is angry. This is a pride, this is a call of humility. Go in the river and bobble down seven times. And Naaman, he, he says something the, the, the lines of He didn't tell me to do something great. He said, Elijah come out there and put his hand and say, Be healed, or do something miraculous, but instead Elijah says, Go. Dunk your head seven times under the water, and you'll be healed. And servant told him that. So Naaman gets angry. His servant comes up to him and says, Why are you so mad? He told you what to do. If it was something great, you would do that. So Naaman says, You know what? Okay, he humbles himself. He goes to the Jordan River. The whole time he's probably thinking, This is stupid. This is not going to work. This is a river. It's nasty. It's gross. The Bible says he dipped himself seven times. When he comes up, his skin is clean. It says it's, it's clean like a child. It's perfect, just beautiful, perfect, untainted skin. Naaman's pride kept him from being healed and being converted to the Lord, which we see after. The same way, this text is absurd. Cast everything on God, and you're like, I can handle it. God says, cast it upon me. I will bear it. Don't worry about it. Give it to me, and I'll handle it. Jesus says in Matthew chapter six, do not be anxious about your life. It's a command jesus that is absurd i have a lot of things i got bills i got family i got friends i got kids don't worry about anything this text is almost absurd but why why do we cast it upon him jesus says that god takes care of the birds he takes care of the grass why don't you just cast it we would say why why would you want to handle it and the answer is in verse 7 plainly because he cares for you The omnipotent, all-present ruler of the universe, who rules the stars by his command, by his word, by his power, says, I care about you. Give it to me. It's good news for people who are weary, who are sick, who are tired, who are worn out. The Bible says in Isaiah 40 that the nations, all of them, are like a drop of water in a bucket compared to God. Yet, he says, you're the apple of my eye in Psalm 17. I care about you. I want to protect you, I want you. So the same God who is mighty says, come to me, cast upon me, I will bear it, I will care for you because he cares for you. But the pride will say, no, 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 I, can. I got this one, I'll ask you, I need help. God says, cast upon me now, cast all of them because he cares for you. So believer, the Lord will care for you, all of them, not sometimes, never now, always. In his good pleasure he may lovingly bring your world crashing down to show you that he is what remains and what deserves praise Cast your words upon him he will take care of you don't be cut up in the world be fixed on christ so we see how to exercise humility by casting your cares all of them upon him and trust his good counsel and his control but now we see our confidence this is our response this is this is the therefore okay if that's true if he really cares about me if he really loves me if he really says He's mighty, he'll care for me. This is how we respond. And verse 8 is kind of weird. It, it, it's a big transition from God cares about you to Satan. But I think Peter is doing this for a good reason. So Peter sums it up in verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. So Christianity requires your mind, not just blind faith. Use your mind, think about these things, be alert, know what's going on, know the text, know the Lord, know his character, know his word. Be watchful, the enemy of your soul, the devil, and his alluring baits of the world and sin are out there and is watching. Be alert to him. Know of your temptations, know of your weaknesses, know when you're prone to wander, know how you're prone to wander, be alert. The devil has many, the devil has many hooks to catch us with, so be aware, be looking. Then verse 8 says again, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It's a very vivid imagery, especially if you think of the people in this text. Christians were fed to lions for sport. It was fun to watch if you are a Roman. So Peter says, like those lions that seek to kill Christians, the devil's the same way. He is ruthless, he's fierce, he's fast, he's got teeth, he'll bite. Especially if you think of what he calls us, if you look at verse 2, chapter 5, Shepherd the flock of God. So we're lambs against the lion. I don't know if you've ever seen Discovery Channel. Things don't beat lions, they just win. They're good, especially little lambs, they're gonna lose. So lions prowl on lambs, they feast, they kill them. They're good, they're gonna win. So we're called not to wander, but to trust, be aware, be awake, watch. The lion is watching. Now he's not omnipresent, he's not everywhere at once, But he is somewhere, and he watches. He has his minions, his people do his bidding. So he's not omnipresent, but he is aware of who you are, and he's watching. So don't take the bait. Don't fall for the pleasure that he offers. Resist him. And here's the charge. Verse 9. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So Peter gives you kind of two reasons, two things to resist the devil with. And they're very helpful. They're so practical. I love this text. First, your faith. Second, other believers. And this is great. So what a confidence you have in suffering and in trials and in the evil. Here's your two reasons. Number one, faith. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says... We don't fight against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. So the main fight is not with physical enemies, but with spiritual attack, with sin, with temptation, with the devil, with minions, with demons. Have run a word of it. That's our main battle with sin. And what is your defense according to the text, and what is your offense? That same text in Ephesians chapter 6 says this. Pick up the shield of faith, There's your defense, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So you got offense. So your faith is your faith in God's character and His Word. That's your faith that Peter's talking about. Stand firm in your faith. Resist Him. Know the Lord's character. Know His Word. Because Satan hates your faith, and he hates you, and he hates the Son. So remain in our faith. Trusting God's character, trusting his word, that he's mighty, that he cares for you, that he's sovereign, that he's the Lord of all creatures, even Satan himself. But how do we know these things? By his word. So we stand firm in our faith by the word. We have to know the word to be firm in our faith. There's no faith without it. You need to know your word. This is a hard fight. The fight of faith is not easy. Paul says he fought the good fight. So faith is hard. So we need to war back and be on the defense with our, with our faith in Christ. And the offense with the word. So fight your temptation with the word. It's hard. Temptation sucks. It's just, it's just hard. It's, just, it's frustrating. It's everywhere. It's alluring. It looks really good. And it gets you at your weakest moment. The Bible says this in Hebrews chapter 12. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So, in America, we're tempted by sin, which is very common, or, to, or by people tempting you. But for the most part, no one's really, ble- you. usually, you're not going to bleed for it. Someone's not going to slap you across the face. You're not going to get punched in the mouth. You're just going to get made fun of and called something silly. Like, it, this, this is not the big deal. So, Peter's second reason is this. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So what's interesting with this text is your main fight in faith is faith. Trust in God's character and so the second weapon is other believers. Isn't that interesting? Peter says, those who are suffering, look to them. See what they're doing. They're fighting. They're getting killed for their faith. You can't resist an age for five minutes? They're getting killed for it. So Peter's encouragement is other believers. Remember Acts chapter 12 when James was slaughtered and Peter's arrested? You think Peter and James were scared? Yeah, probably. But the church blew up from there, it just took off. You look in Acts chapter seven and the command of Jesus was, "Hey, make disciples, get out of Jerusalem, go to the nations." They did not do it. They just sat there. They, they stayed local. In Acts seven, when Stephen is killed, that's when they spread. They just take off. What's great is what the early church father said, "The blood of the martyrs is the seed or the beginnings of the church." So what Satan means for evil, to attack and to proud believers, to kill them, to tempt you, to lure you away, God means for good, to spread his gospel, to spread his worth. So you're tempted? Think about those who are suffering. They're enduring punishment right now. And the Middle East, people get killed. I think the number each year is about 100,000 Christians die every year from persecution. It's a lot. It's a lot of believers. They getting slaughtered. So we look to them. They are standing firm. I cannot tell you the encouragement Things you hear people who die for their faith. Man, I can I wanna I want to fight that well. I want to resist faith like that. That's the encouragement. So look to things such as Fox Book of Martyrs. Uh, look to biographies of men of the reformers, of the Puritans, look to opendoorsusa.com. You can get stories all day from people being persecuted right now. Be encouraged by their faith and their endurance. They are fighting the fight of faith, the same fight you're fighting. Walk with them, they'll walk with you. Then in verse 10, here's Here's the promise, which seems to be this shining light outside this dark, cloudy suffering we have in our life. There's there's this this light, there's sun behind it. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Suffering in, in the Bible is always portrayed as a small amount. Uh, but for us though, when especially me, if I have the flu, I feel like I feel like I'm sick for like thirty hours. When it's just like a whole, it's just like half a day. Suffering when you're in it, it just seems like it's forever. But from God's vision, from God's sight of eternity, it's a speck compared to it's. Just, it's nothing. So yeah, suffering's real. Um, Jesus knows suffering, so he doesn't think lightly of it. But the point is in this text. Suffering may have a long longevity maybe a long time but compared to eternity it's a small amount. It's a, it's a blink of an eye. It's gone. So what Peter's saying is after you suffer suffered just a little while just, just, compared to eternity it's, just, it's a small bit. The God of all grace. The God of saving grace. The God of providential grace. The God of gracious care for your soul. The God of infinite resurrecting, life-giving, sovereign, free grace. That God will Himself who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ. So God has called you Before the world was laid, God called you. He called you to be his own, to share in the glory that Christ will earn on your behalf. Romans chapter 8 says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he justified, those whom he justified, he also glorified. So that glory is yours, it is guaranteed. That same God says the glory to be revealed will swallow up that suffering. The God of all grace, look at verse 10. This is this is beautiful. beautiful. Will himself, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. Those words are all similar in, in the they're the, the very similar, settings. but look at the text where it says, will himself. Do you need more of God's assurance that he cares for you? When you go to heaven, God will himself come to you, he will look at you. How amazing would it be for God to send you an angel and say, here's your crown? You would be, oh, an angel. An angel, if you, you served the living God, you gave me a crown, you welcome me to heaven? That would be outstanding in itself. But this text says God Himself, be God, the ruler of the universe, the sovereign king, will Himself restore you, confirm you, and strengthen you. He'll He'll, he'll do it with His hand. His mighty hand will touch you. Revelation 21 says that He will wipe away every tear from your eyes. So God Himself, with His mighty hand, will wipe away your tear. He'll comfort you. He'll draw you in. It's a sweet picture of God that He really cares about you. Your suffering is minute school it's going to end and he'll restore and confirm so that's the response God loves his people God of all grace cares for you he will establish you he has called you to it and now we worship Peter's doxology is how we end in worship God's dominion and 1st Peter as we end here there's been four main things God's ruler of all people of all actions of men and the schemes of Satan as a believer you will suffer happen it's not if it's when you're called to live holy on earth so in the meantime trust your life and suffering to god as you wait for glory that's first peter in a nutshell so what a better way to end this text in a worshipful response verse 11 to him be the dominion forever and ever amen god is god we are not he is supreme he is the king he is the chief we are merely servants and his children. God has no rivals. He has opponents, people who oppose him. He opposes the proud. There's no arch enemies. God has no kryptonite. There's no one shot for God to kill him. There's no men who are getting close. God squashes anyone who comes by him. God opposes the proud. He has, no, he has opponents, not rivals. God reigns every enemy will one day bow his feet in fearful subjection to him. If you look at the word dominion, uh, John MacArthur does some homework for me. He says the Greek word literally means domination, so God is dominating the world. He dominates. Everything happens the way he wants. No one thwarts his will. He is the king. He wins. So to him, be the dominion. I think that rightly reveals our worship. God is God. He's going to rule. He is good book of Revelation says that God will tread the winepress of his enemies. He will cast the devil and his demons into hell. He will strike down the nation with a rod of iron. He will deal with the wicked, but he will call, love, and raise his saints to life in Christ forever. He's mighty, and he's tender. He's a consuming fire, and he's precious to us. Evil is not ultimate. God is. Here's a few texts. Daniel 4, he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can say to his hand or say to him, what have you done? Isaiah 46, God declares the end from the beginning from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, I will accomplish my purpose. In First Chronicles 29, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand is to make great and to give strength to all. To him, as First Peter says, be the dominion forever and ever. That is our worship. Let's pray. God, we trust you. We love you. and God, we thank you for your rule. Lord, help us to be humble. Help us to cast our cares upon you to know that you are mighty and able and we are not. We thank you for caring about us, for caring for us, for being mighty and sovereign of the nations, yet you deal with us personally and intimately. God, help us to cast your cares upon you, to resist our pride as you resist pride. Help us to submit ourselves before you and trust our our lives and our daily things to you as you rule them well. And your sons and we pray. Amen.